listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And this week's guest on the show is Dr. Lisa Caresimo. Lisa is an assistant professor of theater at Southern Utah University and co-founder and director of Catalyst, a theater think tank. Her work as a performer and composer has been seen recently in the SF Bay Area at Berkeley Rep, Shotgun Playwright, Players, and many more. Her theatrical research has been published in major journals, including Theater Topics and Frontiers. And she has been invited to present her research on voice and gender at the Voice and Speech Teachers Association, Performance Studies International, and the National Conference on Women's Studies. Lisa, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> well, we're super excited to talk to you about all your impressive work. But before we get to that, we want to know what was your earliest memory um, when you were a small baby or child? My <laughs> earliest memory, I have to say my parents are really good at sort of saying, okay, this is really important. You have to remember this your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and so the very first thing I remember was I was, it was just before I was two. It was like the month before I turned two and it was the piano coming through the front door of our house. Whoa. The piano. Yeah. Like they had just impressed on us that this was a life changing event. And I just accepted that and believed it. And it was. That's such a wow. good first memory for you as someone yeah. who has, whose mu- music has shaped your life so much. Absolutely. Um, so was it, were you excited? Were you afraid? Were you oh, confused? Yes. I just, it, was, it felt like Christmas morning. Like it was cool. just such a huge thing. Yeah. And Lisa, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older sister. Okay. Gotcha. So how did you get into the performing arts from that almost two-year-old watching the piano come through the door? Yeah, I mean, I started taking piano lessons at the age of five and never stopped. So that's just always been a part of my life. Um, And my parents enrolled us in some like summer theater things, um, never, ever, ever intending that it would be my career (laughs) at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then when I was in fourth grade, our elementary school music teacher played us all the songs from Oliver, and he told us the story of Oliver, and he promised at the end of the movie we were going to get to see the movie Oliver with all of these songs in it. But this was so long ago that there were no VHS tapes or anything. He had to, like, order the film reels. (laughs) What? Yes, that's how old I am. I'm ancient. (laughs) And... And the film reel did not get there by the end of the school year. So we didn't get to see Oliver. Wow. I had this huge thwarted desire, right? Which is where fetish comes from. Um, And so I went to to the library and I said, my my music teacher said, there's this book called Oliver. Can I read it? And I told her the whole story. And so she not only introduced me to Dickens that summer um, and I read everything, she also said, but over here are all these Broadway musical albums and you can rent them. You can take your, you can you know, check them out, take them home and listen to them. So wow. my entire summer between fourth and fifth grade, I spent reading Dickens and 
doing jigsaw puzzles while I listened to Broadway musicals and like I would take one out, I would memorize the entire thing till I could sing every word. And then wow. like wow. <laughs> put it on my bike. So have to ask were these records? They were records. They were albums <laughs> with pictures. Wow. Yeah. 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 Then what happened? So that yeah. So then I was just musical obsessed, right? But I didn't actually get to see a musical in a theater until my freshman year of high school, um, when my high school put on Pirates of Penzance. Um, I was. Not in it because I was not allowed to to go out for it, but I ushered for it. And when the first act was over, I didn't know that live theater had intermissions because I'd never been. Oh, and so, so I, did you it over? So I called my mom to come and get me. So she came to get me. <laughs> and then everyone started going back in for the second act. And she wouldn't let me stay. And I like, <gasps> cried oh. home. I cried all night long. So once again... <laughs> Lorded desire becomes fetish. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's so funny. Who <laughs> knows? It's really heartbreaking, but oh my gosh. Um, wow. Um, okay. So, what could you talk to us a bit about your journey to theater from <laughs> missing the second half? <laughs> Um, so how did you did you uh you know study in college or no so I I when I was 14 my high school music director said um I have a job that I'm turning down and I think you can get get it if you go and lie about your age so I did I got my first uh, professional uh, job as a, a music director in the theater at the age of 14. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And then, you know, I kind of kept doing that. And I figured that was what I was going to do for my life. Right. Um, I enjoyed performing, but had a lot of stage fright as an actress. So, you know, figured that wasn't my thing. And also, I was neither the ingenue nor the girl who can't say no I was like the girl who said maybe and there aren't parts for that um (laughs) so I yeah so I did a lot of music directing Uh, my parents would not allow me to go to college for theater um so I went for communications which was a secret theater degree um and then I like went and got my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon in literary theory why I have no idea um And the entire time I was just doing theater all the time, all the time, all the time. Mm. And then I was doing, I was music directing. I can't even remember the show. And this is for a professional theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the director would show up to rehearsal um, incapacitated. And he would would say, Lisa, do something with this. And he'd go take a nap in the corner while I directed my first show, basically. (laughs) So that's how I got into directing. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. What did you like about directing from the beginning? Um, wow. I love helping people discover stuff. I always saw directing as a teaching thing, right? Um, that it's, and just like that, the, the really deep conversations you can have with people about mm-hmm. their characters, about what the show is really about. 
and just like watching that light of discovery turn on in people I love. Um, yeah, I, I came sort of later to discovering making pictures and developing sort of the pace and the structure of a show. Um, but at first it was just that really personal thing. Oh, that's really interesting. Kind of like, um, like the dramaturgy side of directing. And yeah, the, I guess so. Yeah. I don't know, like coach acting coach right, like side of directing. the acting coach side. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious to hear you talk about, um, your research about vocal work and the voice. Um, cause we talked a couple of weeks about what you're researching and writing about, and I just find it so fascinating. So can you share with our listeners, um, basically the topic of your dissertation? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, it's construction of gender in the voice through bodily and institutional practices. Um, so basically what that means is that I, I think that very little about what we hear as gendered in the voice is biologically determined, um, that it is like 99.999999% a result of institutional and cultural practices. And what does that mean? So, well, that includes pitch, which is like, I think the biggest thing that, that people, when you think of male and female voices, Right. The first thing people are mm-hmm. going to say is, well, men have lower voices and women have higher voices. And that, of course, that's a biological thing. Right. Men are bigger. Their uh, larynxes are longer and tilted. Right. That we all sort of watch that change that happens in adolescence when boys voices start to break and girls don't. Right. So it seems like this really obvious thing. Um, um, and yet when we can start to hear gender difference in children's voices as early as ages three and four. Um, Even infants, like when they babble to um, their dad, they, they babble deeper than when they babble to their mom. And so they're sort of making, yeah, yeah. They're making those distinctions really early on. Um, And of course it, we, we, there is no biological difference in the vocal tract right, in any of the vocal mechanism between a four-year-old boy or a four-year-old girl or a four-year-old non-binary person, right? Um, Yeah. And so there has to be, um, I just realized there has to be some, you know, some cultural stuff happening there. Um, And so I'll just give you an example of a bodily practice, um, which is we all know what manspreading is, right? Um, (laughs) So if you've been on a subway in, in Manhattan, you know. Um, and so if you if like take a minute where you are and sort of spread your legs out and spread your arms out and let your rib cage take up a lot of space, right? And if you take a really deep breath there and make some sound, as much sound as you can. I know we're on mic, so I don't want to feed back, but go ahead, try it. Just like, take a big, big breath, make a lot of sound. All spread out. Uh. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So now, scrunch up. Like if you're sitting, cross your legs, cross your arms, like over your chest, like bend your head down. Take, crawl up into a tiny, tiny, tiny ball, right? And then take a breath and make sound again. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. right. I'm, I'm really bad. We're not actors. We can't do this without laughing. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> Laughter is wonderful. Um, so what? <laughs> 
what did you feel in the dif- what was the difference in the feeling of like breathing and making sound in those two positions? It was harder to make noise the second time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And what about the breath? Yeah, I felt like I I was like holding a lot in the second Yeah, the second time. Right, right. And you could get a really deep breath when you're expanding, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Right. So that that was a really extreme exercise in the moment. But if you think about the permission that the male body is given in our society to take up space and how the value of the female body is almost exclusively based on how little space we take up. Um, And you think about how we begin those daily bodily practices, right, as as Judith Butler would, would tell us, from a really early age. And if we don't do our gender correctly, we're going to face consequences, right? We're going to get beaten up. We're going to not get jobs. There's like, there's all kinds of consequences for not doing those practices according to your assigned gender correctly, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about the fact that we're doing that all day, every day, not to that extreme, but the boys are taking up a little more space every day. The girls are taking up a little less space every day. So the boys' rib cages and breasts and voices are getting a little bit bigger every day, every single day all day long and the girls rib cages and and vocal instruments and voices are getting smaller every day all day long so it's no wonder that by the age of four we're already hearing those differences even though though there's no biological basis for it so then by the right so then by the time you get to adolescence and the boys at that point are are faced with all kinds of cultural expectations to maintain a deeper voice and to develop that deeper voice, right? That's part of their rite of passage. And so working, I've worked with uh, elementary and middle school choirs and as early as like 10 or 11, boys start trying to claim that they can't sing above the middle mm. three, like anywhere above there. They're like, oh no, no, I, my voice doesn't go that high. Are when you sitting struggling- at a piano right now? I'm always sitting at a piano. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. So, okay, so um, already at age 10, boys are like, I can't do that note. Right. Yeah, my voice, uh, my voice is too deep for that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yep. So how do you, as a teacher and as a director, how do you think about... Um, coaching particularly college-age students to use their voices in a fuller way? Um, so one of the, the – wow, this that's, that feels like it's jumping ahead a lot of steps. You're right. Um, you're right. <laughs> so but, – but it's a really, really great question. Um, so – the Western institution, let me, let me backtrack a little bit into, yes, please in, in, into the institution of vocal pedagogy. Okay. So the, the Western institution of vocal pedagogy, and wait, I'm going to back up one more step if that's okay. All right. Yes. So another piece of, of research, this fantastic um, speech pathologist named David Azul, um, who's done some terrific work on gender and voice. Um, and he's discovered that the difference in terms of pitch between males and females in different cultures is widely different, mm-hmm. right? So that the difference between male and female voices in Chinese speaking cultures 
is like from here to here. Like this is the average Chinese voice, and this is the average Chinese female voice, right? It's this huh. half step difference, right? It, there are cultures like the French culture. Um, I don't think I have the exact pitches, but it's something like this is the average French man, and this is the average French female. So there's like a <laughs> huge difference, right? Wow. Um, yeah, and so that that was that's just further evidence that it's this cultural practice and not a biological thing, right? Um, okay, so so Western vocal pedagogy. Um, really reifies, right? It like creates and reifies this idea that there is the low male voice and the high female voice, right? And yeah. so from the time you are in middle school, teachers will say, okay, we're going to warm up. Low voices, men's voice is here, women's voice is here. And then you like practice singing an octave apart every single day <laughs> that you're in choir. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? Um, if you are, like I am, a baritone, um, as a female, you're not going to be trained as a baritone, right? I, I was, uh, I went to an all girls high school, um, and our high school choir teacher would order soprano, alto, baritone, choral octavos so that I could sing baritone while the rest of the choir sang soprano and alto. Wow. But <laughs> yeah, but despite that, any of my private vocal teachers only would work on soprano repertoire with me. Really? Like their entire goal was to get me to sing the high notes. And as a baritone, I never would have been accepted into, you know, college to sing classical voice, right? Never going to happen. Um, they are getting a little more open now to transgendered people. Um, so they're, they're beginning to accept that a little bit. Um, but it just, right, they, they would only accept uh, a male baritone and a female soprano. And then they say, oh, but look, it's natural. Men sing low and women sing high, right? So I have um, like a dumb question as somebody yeah. who is not trained at all in voice. Um, mm -hmm. So if so much of the voice is shaped by social, cultural practices, expectations, what causes some people to have a soprano voice and other people to have a baritone voice. Yeah. So there are certainly differences in people's vocal instruments. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. and, and so there are, there are going to be people with um, larger vocal instruments and thicker larynxes that are going to be able to just hit much, much deeper notes. I see. And then okay. there are going to be people with like um, thinner, more supple, vocal folds that are just going to stay nice and thin and supple and that's going to let them hit super super high notes right i see um, okay but okay so let's get into a little bit more into bodily practices if you want to and about sort of what we're really hearing in terms of, of gender um yeah so the the thing that one of the things i found is that it's not actually pitch that we're hearing it's timbre it's formant right and so timbre is the harmonics of the voice, right? It's the harmonics of anything, right? So when you hear a flute play mm -hmm. an A440, which is here, or you hear a violin play the same note, you know which is which because they create different harmonics, right? The overtones oh. are different. And that's 
even though, you know, not, we can't consciously say, oh, well, I'm hearing this harmonic amplified at this level and the next harmonic amplified at this level, our ears are really highly attuned to harmonics. So we, and so we is that just that. like, is that the vibrations? Kind of. It's, it's um, yeah, so it's the, the hertz. It's like, it, it's, when you hear that, you're also hearing sort of what doubles above it and above it and above it. So it's, it's yeah, it's the vibrations that it's setting off in okay. different pitches above it yeah um and so yeah so we can hear that difference between the flute and the violin but we can also if you just say ah eh, e, o, u, right the five different vowels ah, eh, e, o, u, you're changing the harmonics in your voice and in the voice we call them formant vocal formants you're changing that so that you can recognize the different vowels mm-hmm. so we're constantly manipulating the formants Right. Um, but if let's say I was going to sing um, um, another season from making whoopee. Right. So if I'm doing that with all feminine bodily practices, I'm going to stand up and do this. Right. So another season. Right. And part of my fascination with this is that I have this really low voice, but no one ever believed that I was a man when I was singing. Right. They always instantly identified me as a woman. So I went to a vocal teacher as part of my PhD research and said, hey, James, James Goka Hernandez, who is awesome. I said, James, help me sing like a man. Figure out how to teach me to sing like a man. So he took the challenge. (laughs) We worked for a year and figured out the format so I could then go, another season. Whoa. (laughs) Which is the same pitch. Right, but it sounds lower because of the four months. Right, another season sounds so much higher because the harmonics are so different. And so, even when we're hearing men and women speak on the same pitch, if they have those extreme gendered bodily practices, it changes the formants so much. And I wasn't changing my voice on purpose; I was changing my bodily practices just then. Um, so so like tell us specifically, like, what are you doing when you go back and forth between those two okay. um, voices? So first of all, it's taking up space. It's getting that really deep breath if I'm going to do the male body practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is pushing down against the pelvic floor. So you're like pushing down and outward against the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is letting the... Um, corners of the mouth relax, which took me about a month. Really? That took me about a month to learn. Uh Yeah. Because we are always told to smile as, as females in our culture. Right. It took me so long. So, so it's that. And sort of then it's, it's also, here's a, here's a, a really fun one we discovered is that females, when they are, um, being expressive, um, the feminine practice is to use the middle portion of your face. And the masculine practice is to use the bottom third of your face. So if you think of Sam Elliott, who only ever moves his jaw when he talks. (laughs) But that totally totally affects your voice, right? And then if you think of Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, who's like portraying such aggressive femininity in that, right? And the middle, her like her upper lip and the middle part of her face are just moving the entire time. They are never at rest throughout that entire film. And it changes the voice completely. (laughs) Yeah. 
so so you combine all of those and, and another one which I got from uh, Lisa Volpe, who's a fantastic um, performer. I saw her do Shylock at Utah Shakespeare Festival two summers ago, and she was just incredible. Um, and most of the audience had no idea that it was a woman doing it. Um, and so the chakras, like for men, they're completely in line, right? They move them all together. They never let them get out of line. But as a woman, we tend to like let them, the feminine practice is to let them be more out of line. So I spent this year learning to sing like a man. And then I realized, wow, I have a lot of practices that are actually really masculine already. What if I went to the other end of the spectrum and started to be aggressively feminine in all of my bodily practice? What happens then? Whoa. And I added an octave to the top of my range. So now I I, I can now sing soprano repertoire. And because I mentioned the thing about the film reels, y'all know that I'm way older than you ought to be when, <laughs> when you're adding notes to the top of your range. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I have all of those materials to use for my vocal students, mm. right? Because I can, I can help them sort of move a- along the gender spectrum, help them find the high notes and the low notes, whether male or female, right? Um, and so much of what we teach in vocal pedagogy is gendered terms when they don't need to be, because it's the same mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. All works the same. So I, I found that to be really useful. Okay. This is slightly off topic, but <laughs> I'm really curious to know um, mm-hmm. your thoughts on pop music. Um, Cause you know how you've heard uh, men who kind of sing higher, they tend mm-hmm. to hit the pop charts, like, you know, like, uh, Justin Bieber or mm-hmm. Adam Levine from Room Five. Mm-hmm. What? So, what do you think is going on with the audience ears? Like that mm. are attracted to certain sounds or certain um, pitch. Um, so, again, I'm going to back it up a little bit. The reason mm-hmm. that that happens in pop music more so than it does in music which is composed according to Western compositional standards um, is that pop music comes out of a tradition which is taught orally and not notated. Um, and so that oh. codification of where the voice sits isn't a thing. Um, so as part of my dissertation, I looked at recordings by Robert Johnson, Mick Jagger, Billie Holiday, and Janis Joplin, mm-hmm. um, who sing in very similar pitch ranges and whose voice breaks, right? So when you go from for females, they call it from chest to head voice, right? For males, mm-hmm. they call it from full to falsetto. Um, same exact mechanism, no reason to gender the, the terms. Um, every single one of the, those those four performers hit that break at exactly the same place. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And so Billie Holiday, of course, is singing like way, like she's down to the, the sea below middle sea all the time. Um, right. And we, so there's, you don't have to, fit into that box of pitch. This is so fascinating. I know. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> There's so many questions. So like, what are the implications of this, of your research, do you think for, um, just make it really big, the future of theater <laughs> and performance? Uh, well, for one thing, for the future of theater, um, uh, the, the cross, the, the, the freedom to cast people 
um, and not mm. say, oh, well, it has to be women singing this because of this voice type, right? Yeah. Um, like, um, I just recorded the trio now, soon later, from A Little Night Music, which is the baritone, the tenor, and the soprano um, trio at the beginning of that um, Sondheim show um, for, for a journal. Um, and, and wrote about that. And Frederick, which is the baritone role, I would love to play that part. I have no interest in playing Desiree whatsoever. Um, right? So just like the freedom to explore different parts would be so freeing. Um, and also, if we can teach this method, and I've like developed this method, I've taught this to other students, right? Um, so much, so many medical procedures which are done for um, people who are transitioning genders mm -hmm. would not need to be done. Because you're saying so much of it could be just in the, uh, what's your terminology? Like the bodily practices? In, in bodily practices, right. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Huh. That's just super exciting to think about. <laughs> yeah, it, is. it really it is. is. So um, are there, you mentioned Lisa Volpe, are there any other um, like playwrights, directors, performers who are exploring this territory where you're really um, interested in their, what they're finding out? I, I haven't seen a lot of other people exploring this particularly vocally. Um, Lisa Volpe really explores the bodily practices, which then, of course, affects her mm. voice. But she's mm -hmm. going very much from from how the body works. I have to say, I did really enjoy. I've been enjoying watching the St. Anne Dunmar's Warehouse. Um, oh my gosh! And, and those the women in those shows have so much permission to take up space. Yeah. Right. And that really then affects the power of their voices and what's happening vocally. So I've, I've really been enjoying that work. Yeah. I, one of the questions I'm thinking about now, I also went to a all girls school and I'm now you've got me thinking about um, like in all women's spaces, like in the Donmar shows or I don't know, in like maybe women's prisons. I mm -hmm. wonder if, um, people's voices naturally develop more range and variety when they're in like single sex spaces? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, and one of the sort of historical things I found in my research, because I was really curious what, what happened before Western education, yeah. right? And so I discovered in the late 1500s, so just before Western notation changed so that it became fixed pitch, right? So that like a certain number of spaces meant this is always going to be this particular note rather than sort of notes that were relative to each other. Um, there is a record of a um, convent choir um, and mm. visitors to this convent talk about this superb bass, um, Sister Alfonso Trotto. And in the writing about her, it's clear that like they're not like, oh my gosh, it's a woman singing bass. It's just, oh wow, this 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 bass is really good. And they just assumed that in a in a convent choir, which of course is all women, there is going to be someone singing that lowest note. Mm -hmm. Right? And and the compositions, there's like a 16-part contrapuntal composition that came out of that 
acquire, which according to the rules of counterpoint, like has to encompass the entire range of the human voice. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so with everything that wow, this is so much like this is like mind blowing for me. Um, so I mean, one, I'm just thinking about uh, the different spaces I'll be like when I when when my voice changes. Like if I'm in front in at work and I'm like having to you know talk mm. to my coworkers, I find myself mm-hmm. kind of like you know you know speaking on a little lower register maybe kind of like yeah but when i'm at like parties or like hey guys you know um <laughs> it's just not a, yeah in a more public it's just so funny that um i'm just realizing that like my how my voice changes when i'm in the different spaces um very cool um, watch that now that you're aware of it and see different voices you have right yeah yeah Okay, so uh, shifting gears a bit. So what advice would you give to our listeners uh, who are interested in this work, in this type of work, or like maybe directing or creating new work? What uh, advice would you give to those folks to uh, to, to think about? Um, yeah, to think yeah. about that the, the vocal instrument is so much more than just the larynx, right? That we... It is just endlessly malleable. There are so many possibilities in what the human voice can do. And I feel like we get really limited by the boxes of composition and what we've heard other people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so it's exploring the voice sort of from what the body is doing rather than just focusing on the larynx. That makes sense. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, in a moment, I want to talk about Catalyst because that sounds yeah. like a really fascinating um, project. But first, I'm just going to ask you if you could have dinner with any three theater artists or performers, dead or alive, who would you pick? That are alive. Or um, dead. They can be dead. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay. They'll be reincarnated for your dinner party. So many. Um, okay, so Elaine Stritch would have mm. to be there because her wit was just so acid. Um, so I would love her to be there. Um, and then Jerry Robbins, I think she and Jerry Robbins would just like, you know, that would be such a contest of wills and wit. I would love that. Um <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I think actually the perfect addition to that party would be Cole Porter. Ooh. Yeah, just to put the three of them at a table and and watch the sparks fly, which aren't necessarily like my favorite theater artist. It's just the dinner party thing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I guess before we move to Glistens, tell us about Catalyst. Okay, so um, Catalyst, I'm in my fourth year of this fantastic New Works Festival um, that is based on the UC Davis campus. Um, My co-director and co-founder of Catalyst is the marvelous Mindy Cooper, um, who was in the original cast of the Chicago Revival on Broadway, Titanic on Broadway, um, dance cast of all of those, and she is just this most amazing director and teacher and human being. 
Um, and so she's on faculty at UC Davis. Um, and so together we, yeah, we've been doing new works. We got to do a fabulous new work by this playwright, Sam Collier, that was really <laughs> incredible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and we, it's, it's really fun to do this because it's on the UC Davis campus and we get to use the UC Davis students and sort of create this kind of conservatory experience for them. They get to learn about doing new work. Um, and then the playwrights get to come and sort of play with a little more freedom than you get when you're sort of in the professional theater setting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we're on Zoom, unfortunately, we're we're still trying to make the best of that. And so now we're getting to combine the UC Davis students with the SEU students. Last night, actually, I did a reading of a new play called Dancing Home um, that was a co-production with San Francisco Youth Theater. So we use students from San Francisco Youth Theater and SUU and UC Davis all in the cast of the show last night. Yeah, Um, because we're not bound by geography right now. So we can Mm -hmm. just play. Yeah. Um, So we've got uh, still coming up. We've got a couple of great readings coming up in the season. We're using Zoom OBS um, for the readings for Perfect, Be in a Jar, and Timepiece. Um, which is a new movie musical I'm developing um, with the SUU students um, and Keaton Grayson and uh, or Keaton Wooden and Grayson Selby have written that and just so much fun. Um, awesome. And so with the Zoom OBS platform, I don't know if you've you've done much of this where you have like the actors in different rooms on green screens, but then in the post production, it looks like they're all in the same space. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the final um, thing we're doing in the spring, again, it's going to probably be Zoom OBS if we're all still in this reality. Um, and that's with the Tony-nominated composer Paul Gordon um, and the Emmy-nominated composer Curtis Moore. And they've written a new musical that we're working on with them, which is just so exciting. I've been a fan of Paul Gordon for years, so I'm thrilled to get to work with him on this. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Cool. So we'll be sure to link the, um, the catalyst, um, your link in our episode oh, show great. notes. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. All right. So I guess we'll move on to glistens. Uh, glistens. At the end of the show, we like to share our highlights of the week. Um, it could be anything. It could be anything. It could be music you heard or headline that caught your attention. Um, so to get started, uh, Sam, do you want to go first? Sure. I'll go first. Um, Well, it is fall here in Maine. And yesterday I climbed a mountain with my sister, looked at the foliage, and then we went apple picking. Um, And I just love apples. That's my glisten. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I I hate apples. You know this about me. No, I just like hate the sound when a person bites into an apple. I honestly, I cringe. I run away. I like, I shatter into a million pieces. It's like, I'm pretty sure our first year of grad school, I ate an apple next to you every day. And like, you didn't tell me this at the end of the year. Well, the first year, and I didn't want, I wanted to make friends. So I'm not going to tell you that I hate what you're doing. And now I I need to know, is it just apples? Does celery do the same thing? And carrots? Or just apples? Um, No, I think it's just apples. For some reason, (laughs) it's just apples. Okay. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what it is. I yeah, it's like it's like a chalkboard, you know, like a someone scratching yeah. on the chalkboard. It's just it's ooh, cringe. <laughs> and Sam wrote a whole play about apples I one, did. one oh, semester. I think that's when you told me. It was like yeah. all these people eating apples on stage. And Sarah was like, it's really hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um my glisten uh this week is um I got back into crocheting and I've uh, found a bunch of yarn that was back in our old apartment and then I came back here and I just kind of came across it again. So I'm back into the attempt to make it a blanket the eighth time. (laughs) (laughs) During this quarantine, I feel like I just go back and forth with this crochet, but I'm going to try it. I'm really going to try again. (laughs) I believe in you. Thank and you. you know what they always say? Eighth time's the charm. <laughs> well, they say cool. that now. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lisa, what's your glisten? Mine is also fall and, and food oriented. I just love the sort of turnover from heirloom tomatoes and caprese salad to acorn squash with butter Ooh. and maple syrup. And I, I had my first acorn squash this week. It made me so happy. Yum. Um, yeah. Oh. I was um recently I roasted squash to make soup and I just like let it roast and mm. then, and I took it out and made it into a soup. So Yum. That sounds so good. Yeah. Oh. All right, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um oh, so I guess before we head out uh where can our Lisa, uh, Lisa, where can our listeners find you? Um, they can find me. Yeah, they can find me at catalyst3t.com. They can find me at carissimo.com, which is Q-U-O-R-E-S-I-M-O.com. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, look up my last name, which is kind of unique. I was the only Carissimo in the Manhattan phone book when I lived there. Um, wow. <laughs> also in there were phone books. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram and stuff, but yeah, there you go. Cool. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks yeah. so much, Lisa. This is so much fun to talk to you guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com. And you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.